0: Picking it up today, as we've been going through, for those of you who are visiting uh, in an expository way, through the Gospel of Mark, today it's verses 28 through 34 of Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, 28 through 34. Let us hear then the very breathed out word of God to us this morning. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, ask him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no Other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. As far the reading of God's word, once again, pray and ask for God's blessing on it. Amen. My guess is if I ask you the following date, maybe one or two of you know the significance of it. My guess is the vast majority of us, and I would have included myself in this, would not have known its significance. The date is May 24, 1738. May 24, 1738. 38. I'll ask you to ponder, think about it. You can tell me afterwards if you knew it, and I'll look you in the eye and mm, I don't know about that. I think you're I think you're you're not, you're not telling the truth. But others of you, there might be one or two, right, that might know the significance of that date. May 24, 1738. It was upon that day. That John Wesley opened up his scriptures randomly. And his eyes fell upon that specific verse. Which one you say? You are not far from the kingdom of God. Now understand that when Wesley read that upon that day. Wesley was already a minister. With some pretty great titles. He had uh, some pretty fabulous educational degrees behind him at that point. He had already served as a missionary to the United States. Particularly to Georgia. He was already a member of what was called the Holiness Club. Men who had taken vows and uh, to remain separate and apart from the things of the world of that day. His father was a minister. He's going to have brothers who are ministers. And yet when his eyes fell upon that verse, May 24, 1738, in what For him was a random act, but for God was an act of providence. He was converted. All that had gone before was a lie, was fake, was false, was rites and rituals. And it wasn't until he read those words, you are not far from the kingdom of God, that the Spirit struck him with the fact that he was indeed a sinner, and that his only hope of salvation was Jesus Christ. One day a scribe came to Jesus. Let's look, first of all, at the man, secondly, the teaching, and thirdly, that statement of Jesus, the not far. Who do we encounter here? Here we encounter a scribe, a man who is a, uh, scribes were the teachers of the law, scribes were the lawyers of the day. Don't think of Mr. Sam and uh, all those other commercials that you see on television. They're not that kind of lawyer. For them, a lawyer is a person who is skilled and knowledgeable about the law of God, that they took special note and special training. They were aware of all the various teachings that had gone on. They are not members of the Sanhedrin's in the sense that we, we would traditionally think it. They're probably more the, the guys who stand on the sideline and offer their opinions and rulings about the, the law itself. They are not Pharisees. They are not Sadducees. They're in a class by themselves. Men who understand the law of Moses as it's given in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's who comes to Jesus. But I want you to note as well, if you turn forward, there there is another description given to us a little bit later in chapter 12. Jesus in verse 38, 39, and 40, states the following. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes. So beware of men who are scribes, who are like this man in our passage this morning. Why? Because they like to walk around in long robe and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. That's the category of people that this man and one of the scribes came to him. This is the class of people out of which this man comes. People who know the law, people who are skilled at the law, but people who are not practicing the law. He was a scribe. What else do we know about the man? Well, if you follow verse 28 along, he came up and heard them disputing with one another. Now, the question would be, what dispute? Well, if we go back in the chapter, right, we know what these disputes are. The disputes are Jesus' parable about the tenants and the way they respond, the paying taxes to Caesar as he dealt with the Pharisees and the Herodians, the exchange between Jesus and the Sadducees about the resurrection. And Jesus' statement, you are quite wrong, because you don't know the word of God. Now, how much of all of that this scribe heard, we are unaware. But he obviously was in on the last conversation. He was in on the conversation in which Jesus responds to these Sadducees. He heard the dispute. He's not taking part in it. He's not a part of it. The the what is going on? He's just listening in. He's got his ears tuned to the to the questions and the statements, but he's got his ears tuned to Jesus' answers as well. Verse 28 also tells us that he appreciated Jesus' answers. This is quite a shift, isn't it? All right, we're going to see that throughout with this man. Verse 28. He heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, that is Jesus, answered them in the nearest context, the Sadducees' Well, He made an evaluation. He listens to Jesus' answer and he appreciates it. He made a good response. That was was really good of Jesus. That was a great answer he gave to those Sadducees about the resurrection. Took them right there to the, to the, to the very source of their teaching. Because remember I told you last week, Sadducees hold only to those five books of Moses. And, and the man probably is thinking, man, he didn't use Isaiah, he didn't use Jeremiah, because that they could have perhaps thrown off. He goes right to Moses and he proves the resurrection right from Moses. And he appreciates what Jesus has done. Now think about it from his lawyer's perspective, right? We we have something going on. We have a law that is in a sense being tested. And, And the law that is being tested in that case is the resurrection. The lawyer, the scribe, appreciates the way Jesus went at answering the question probably because it's the way the scribes would have answered questions when somebody comes to them about a question about one of the laws what do they do they go back to Scripture they they expound Scripture in order that a right understanding of the law can be had as an example of that in our world today okay doesn't happen Often enough as far as many of us are concerned but when questions about the Constitution come up okay doesn't really do much good to talk about in a sense all that has come before what you need to know is what was that original meaning what did it mean originally when those men wrote those words what was the understanding This man appreciates Jesus because Jesus goes back to the source. He doesn't quote rabbis and rabbis and rabbis. He goes right back to Moses and he appreciates it. That is what causes him to ask a question. That's the the fourth thing we know about this man. Not only that he was a scribe, not only that he heard the exchange, not only that he appreciated Jesus' answer, but that he asks a question. Notice what the question is. The question is a question about the law. Doesn't ask question, some other sort of theological question. He asks a question about the law. What is the greatest? Which is the greatest of all of the laws that we have been given? Secondly, note that it's a question That is, seeking knowledge. He genuinely wants to know. He has heard the way Jesus has answered the Sadducee question. Now, seeing he knows Jesus answers well, here is a question. Which is the greatest commandment? Here's this man's livelihood, right? This is what this man spends his life energy on. This is what he's been trained to do, study the law. But of all these laws that we have, which one is the greatest? Notice we read of no plot, we read of nothing, that that he's trying to trick Jesus, he's trying to somehow stir the Romans against Jesus, or he's trying to stir the crowd against Jesus. This is just an honest question. It's a question of truthfulness. Not a desire to see Jesus fail, but a desire to know the truth. Which is the greatest commandment? Secondly, let's note the teaching. Note the answer that Jesus gives. Now, there's nothing really astonishing here, is there? Really, when you stop to think about it. Even from a Jewish perspective, it's not like, wow, he really dug those verses out of nowhere. Man, here there are a couple of little verses, a couple of little things attached here or there. Jesus has made a huge case about it. No, these verses are well known to every practitioner of the Jewish religion of Jesus' day. This is called the Shema Israel. It's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. So all Jesus is doing is quoting scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Words that opened every synagogue service. See, they're not unfamiliar with it. They hear it every single week. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. I shall love the Lord thy God. They hear it all the time. Every Jew of Jesus' day who is religious, their morning prayer began with that verse. Every night, they began their evening prayer with that verse. They wear a little box on their forehead. Inside the box is that verse. They have a little armband. In the armband is a little box. In the box is that verse. It is well known. Every practitioner of the Jewish religion of that day at their door has a little box. In the little box is that verse. They know this verse. What is the greatest commandment? It's the one you say all the time. It's the one you hear all the time. It's the one you see all the time. It is the one that you recite all the time. A verse that demands full devotion to God. A verse that demands that one's whole entire life be given to God. The answer? To love God. And another like unto it is this. We use the word second here to mean, in our minds, second means less, right? Because if you don't get first place, you get second place. If you get second place, you're the loser, right? That's the way we, we look at it. That's the way our Western minds understand it. What Jesus is saying, though, in a Jewish mind, is that, here is the greatest commandment and alongside of it is next to it is on a par is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself once again not some new command once again not something wow that's really that's really interesting man you the psychology of that verse Or, you know, the the philosophy of that. Man, you must have been up on a holy mountain somewhere for a long time meditating on life. No, that's right from God's word. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. The Jews knew this. The Jews understood this. This was to be their practice. Here are then the greatest commands. Love God and love neighbor. Not a first and second in the way we think about it, but in a right and a left. In a fullness of love. See, that's the uniqueness of Jesus' answer. That's why the lawyer responds the way he does. That's why the scribe listens and and is going to respond to that. He doesn't just say when when he hears this, Well, you're just repeating what we've had. He is, in a sense, overwhelmed by the answer. Because Jesus has coupled two things together that as far as rabbinic tradition had never been put together. This is an unknown thing. They know both verses, but they've never connected the two verses together. Some of you are thinking, I don't know, we're going a little far with this. No, we're not. Go with me to 1 John. Okay, 1 John chapter 4. Verse 19, we love 19 as Reformed believers, right? Election, predestination, there it is. Trouble is we often stop at verse 19 and don't read the rest of what John said in that passage. So verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, first commandment, right, greatest, and hates his brother, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Now what do you suppose John is referring to? When when we hear John say, and this commandment we have from him he's referring to Jesus when at this very exchange and what is the commandment we have from Jesus whoever loves God has the option of loving his neighbor whoever loves God well that's primary and if I get around to it secondly I can love my brother notice John's statement here is one of equality. If you love God, then on the same par, you have to be loving your brother. Must love. Not should love. Not may love. Not could love. Not might. Must, must, must love. Whoever loves God must love his neighbor. Remember the scribe? Remember the description of 38, 39, and 40? Oh, they loved the accolades. They had put their hearts before God. They had violated the Shema. But what else does Jesus say? Notice what they do. Is there any love for brother? Is there love for neighbor? No, they rob widows blind. A scribe, here's Jesus. Oh, the uniqueness that we are called to a total commitment, a full, complete commitment of loving God. And joined with it, cannot be separated from. Cannot be divided from it. We must love our neighbor. But then there's a second uniqueness, isn't there? How must I love my neighbor? How must I love that neighbor? I must love that neighbor as much as I love myself. As much as I desire to be loved, that is how I must love my neighbor. I can't love my neighbor less. I mean, we're we're ultimately all, I thrown people, right? We we ultimately are all people who want all the attention. I don't care how discouraged people are. I don't care how low their self-esteem. It's really putting themselves on the throne. Even when you say, oh, I'm the worst person in the world. It's all self-attention. It's all about the ego. It's all about self. We're all there. Calvin spoke of the fact that that our hearts are constant idol factories. Why? Because we always are placing ourselves there. If there's one being in this world we think deserves love, it's us. Well, here's what Jesus said. If you're going to love your neighbor, you better love him as you love yourself. Wow. Now notice the scribe's answer, verse 32. And the scribes said to him, you are right, teacher. (laughs) When's the last time Jesus heard that from anybody in the religious establishment, right? When's the last time some Pharisee, some chief priest, some Sadducee, at the end of the conversation has said, you're right? No, at the end of the conversation, they turn around and seek to kill him. This guy blurts out, notice the Sadducees are probably still there. There's probably some fellow scribes around. There's a crowd there, and he publicly declares, you're right. (laughs) You are right. You have said that there is one and there is no other besides him, and to love him with all heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. You are not far from the kingdom of God. What a compliment, isn't it? What a compliment. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee of the wrath of God. You're all sons of your father, the devil, who was a liar at the beginning. This is Jesus' usual response to this crowd. Here's this scribe. You are not far from the kingdom of God. What a compliment. Most people that Jesus has encountered aren't anywhere close to it. But he's not far. Why? Listen to verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely. Jesus hears what this man says. And he hears its wisdom. this man is not thinking about jesus answer from some predisposed position this man is willing to absorb the truth this man is willing not to close off all the doors, no matter what Jesus says, right? That's the way these other conversations, it doesn't matter what Jesus says about taxes. It doesn't matter what Jesus says about resurrection. They're not listening, and they could care less what he really has to say. But this man heard. He heard. You are not far from the kingdom of God. But the man not only answered wisely, we can also say he answered truthfully. Because notice what he did is worth more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He just threw out the whole of what Judaism was based on. No, I'm not saved by these rituals. I'm not saved by these ceremonies. There is no one else that Jesus encounters that says so much in so little. It's a compliment. You are not far from the kingdom of God. But it's also a warning, isn't it? He is not far. Jesus in this week is also going to speak a parable about the ten virgins and the oil in their lamp. And then we have those who who are ready and prepared and they are invited in to the the marriage feast uh, that the bridegroom allows them in. And then there are those who come late. And they're at the door. They're standing at the door but they're too late. And they're not let in. We could interpret Jesus' words by saying, you can be at the door of the gate of heaven, but that isn't in. Kent Hughes in his commentary puts it this way, you can be within an inch of heaven but still go to hell. It's startling, isn't it? I just, it? Getting into heaven is not being in the proximity, but not being near, not being in the neighborhood. We sang in that psalm, God's grace is like the ocean. Yeah, it's like the ocean. It's big, it's wide. God's grace Extends far, but there is an end of that extension, isn't there? There is a boundary to which it is held. You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Notice you're not in the kingdom of heaven, but you're not far, you're close. It's good to be close. But close isn't good enough. Close is not in. We say, well, what's missing? What, What else was this man to do? Jesus recognizes that this man is absorbing his truth, that this man is wise in that which he is looking at, That this man has answered truthfully and correctly. He understands that all his works are not going to save him. He's so close. But what's missing? I'm a sinner. I need you, Jesus, as my Savior. He is so close. So near to the kingdom. He's got all sorts of knowledge, all sorts of information. Practices all the rules, all the rituals. He's probably got that that verse here and on his arms. It's probably on his house. He's got it everywhere. He is surrounded. But he doesn't have it here. It's not his life. It's not a passion. It's words to hear, but not words to live. In May 24, 1738, God, in his providence, as a man, open up this scripture. And he reads. He sees himself. I've got all these degrees. I've got all these titles. i got all this background. I, I've done all these things. I've got this position as minister. I've been a missionary. I'm in the holy club. But it's not in my heart. It's all out there. It's not here. And you notice what just happened? Do you notice how silent it came? Look at the response. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. There was a silence. Because everybody standing there had to contemplate those words for themselves. This was not a time for questions anymore. This was not a time for debate. This was not a time for squabble. This was a time to be still, to look at one's own heart. Do I know myself a sinner? And am I trusting Christ alone? This morning, we saw two of our young people stand before you and make that statement. They answered those questions. But we each, we each have to answer that question. Wesley Wright wrote about that day that suddenly when he came to the realization that it was a heart issue, that he needed to acknowledge his sin and his complete dependence upon Christ, he felt a warming in his soul. And if you trace this man's life from that moment, his life was forever changed. Maybe you've had that moment in life. Maybe you've had that time. Maybe God did that to you when you were in the womb of your mother. Maybe he did that to you when you were three years old or seven. Or 12, 15, 18, 25. But my friend, Until, until you know personally that you are a sinner saved only by Christ, then the words to the scribe are words to you. You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. We pray that God's Spirit might so work in our hearts So work in our lives to give us that assurance, that hope, that peace, that life of not hearing on the day of our death. Well, you weren't far from the kingdom of heaven, but to hear, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Amen? Amen.